here. God, teach us through this scripture in James more of what it means to be a follower of yours, what it means to be in your family. Um, God, help us to see just practically how that identity in Christ infiltrates our lives and our wealth or our lack thereof. So God, let us leave here not having just been to some good service or heard good music or preaching. Let us walk out of this place boasting in you and your goodness. So I pray that happens, Lord. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good? All righty. Well, we are in James chapter 1, 9 through 12. If you're a guest with us, welcome. If you're not, welcome. But if you are a guest, then you might wonder how we got in James. And um, even after hearing this, this message, you might think, I've either come into a church of, um, where there's a lot of poor people or a church where there's a lot of rich people. All right? That'll make sense in just a second. Um, just to encourage you, if you're new, uh, we preach verse by verse. So we started the book of James a couple of weeks ago. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. And so the context is everything. Um, the context of the, of the book of James is James is a pastor. He was the half-brother of Jesus, the lead pastor of Jerusalem, lead elder. And he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Jewish Christians. And there weren't many Gentile Christians. So if you're not a Jew this morning, then there weren't many Christians that were like us at this point that James was writing this. And so he's writing to Christians as a pastor of people that more than likely, at least some of them, that he had the opportunity to pastor or to shepherd at some point. And so he's writing from a pastor's heart. He's writing to people who have been dispersed. They are currently suffering. They're struggling. And we've talked a lot about that over the last couple of weeks. They're suffering in their struggles. Some of them we have not experienced um, because they are under heavy, intense persecution because of their identification with Jesus. Some of their struggles we have experienced just because they live in a fallen world and they're fallen people just like we are. And so it's not just the, uh, the persecution because they're followers of Christ that they're experiencing this suffering. That doesn't exempt you from just day-to-day suffering. And even today, it's going to be this other level and area of struggle, as we'll see kind of throughout this book, is this struggle from the inside. And so he's writing to churches, and today he's going to um, address specifically, he just you know, I'm sure there were rich people and there were poor people in the congregation for sure. And there's lots of people in between. And it is very practical um, words for us this morning, yes. But I want you to keep in mind, James' point and hope is to point them back to Jesus. Even though he doesn't say that, even though he's not going to say the words Jesus and trust in Jesus, I hope and pray that we see this morning um, that his words and, and what they boast in and where they should look, whether they're a lowly brother or sister or a brother or sister who has physical and material wealth, that they would all together look to Christ. But evidently, um, the, the socioeconomic differences among some of the congregations had caused some issues. I think we can relate to that. Whether it's money that causes issues, I think if you've been a part of a church long enough, you know that there are what? Issues. If you have, if, <laughs> if you have not been a part of a church, I don't want you going into it with this pipe dream. We're people, we're humans, starting from the elders and everybody involved that need Jesus. We're not perfect, we're not to be, uh, don't place your hope in the church, place your hope in its Savior. 
We are people who are gathered under the name of Christ who desperately need Him for wisdom and direction and hope and salvation. And, and that's, that's where we are. So because there's people involved, there's going to be problems. There's going to be issues. There's going to be sin. And so that's what we'll see today. And so if, if you want to look with me, the word of the Lord, starting in verse 9. I'm, I'm not going to read all the way through it. And, and so what we'll do this morning, j- just a little, if you want a little glimpse into um, my last 24 hours. Um, I actually lost my entire sermon yesterday at lunch um, completely. So... Um, We'll be out of here in about five minutes. No, I'm kidding. Um, and, and so I had to scramble a little bit. Um, but uh, kind of the way that I've done it, because I had to do it quick, about 10, 20 hours of work was gone. But that's okay. God's sovereign. And so here we are. And what I want to do is I want to take these sections, and I want to first address what, what James addresses in verse 9, and then we'll just kind of walk through it together. And Lord willing, we'll see um, the good news of the gospel as we journey through this, but also see um, just some really practical things as well about how to function together with one another. So verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, two key words there. The first one is lowly. Now, that, that Greek word is used a lot of different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated as poor, sometimes lowly. Um, but, but as we'll see as this scripture unfolds, he's not speaking of someone who's necessarily uh, poor spiritually or poor emotionally um, or poor mentally. He's speaking to people who are physically poor. Like they don't have as much. They don't have the means. Um, look, they may not even realize that they're poor, but, but that's the people he's addressing. So that's, that's important to know. But also another key word is brother. He's addressing Christians who are this way, men and women in families. So to the lowly family, to the lowly follower of Jesus, those of you who don't have as much wealth as others, that's who he's speaking to. Notice what he says. Let the lowly brother boast... In his exaltation. Now that has tremendous context. Because here, and and I'm going to give it to you, but I want you to see here how if you wanted to and you approach the book of James or any scripture, but certainly this section of scripture with some sort of agenda to promote something other than the gospel, then you could do that here. Because there's not a lot of clarity, there's not a lot of direction. A lot of what James says in this short little simple sentence is understood. And so what's the boast? What's the exaltation? Should this impoverished person, should they set out for riches? Should they boast in their pursuit of earthly gain and money? Should they boast in, in, in the fact that they need to posture themselves beside people who um, have been successful so that they can be successful? Is that the message of the church? Is that the message of the gospel? Not this one. No. And so what's the context? What does the lowly brother, again, keyword, Christian, believer, what is their exaltation? And so for the poor believer, we've got to start with the poor believer because James does, but for the poor believer or the rich believer, the boast is in the riches that Jesus brings. And Jeremy's just going to throw some scriptures up here, and, and I've kind of bolded the areas that I want to f- uh, focus in on, and I'm going to have to read these quickly, okay? But what I want us to see, if you're a believer this morning and and you feel like less of a human because you don't have things that other people have or because you haven't been successful like other people have been successful then here's where I want this to encourage I want you to see the wealth that you have in Christ 
And I'll talk about how it transcends any other wealth in just a second. But this is what I want us to see. All of us is what we have being in Jesus. What it means to be a follower and a believer of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. But God being rich. He's the rich one. All right, In what, what we need the most. Not money. It could say money there but it doesn't. God's not. He is rich in money but he's rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up. Now watch this, as far as position and wealth and meaning and purpose and riches, this is true for the believer. In Jesus, up with him and seated currently, right now, somehow, it's a mystery, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that. In the coming ages, not necessarily this one, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I hope just by one of the references, you're starting to feel a little bit more wealthy. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, inheritors of God and fellow heirs with Christ what Jesus inherits we inherit all right provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him next one Galatians 4 1 through 4 now some of this um let's try to get to these uh, last part but I want to read all of it I mean that the heir as long as he is a child is no different from a slave though he is the owner of of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Next section. All right. But when the fullness of time had come, this is when Jesus came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those or purchase those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. There's something we gain. This adoption is we are purchased. Literally, our souls are bought by the blood of Jesus. And what that does is not just cleanse us and forgive us of our sin, but then we are adopted and placed, purchased, bought, and put into the family of God. Where was I? We might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son. So not only are we adopted in his family, but God then sends us to the believer, his spirit of his son. And he lives in us into our hearts. And this spirit cries, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Next scripture. 1 Corinthians 3. Oh, I love how Paul says it here. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all, th listen, all things are yours. That has nothing to do with your neighborhood. That has nothing to do with your salary. That has nothing to do with how hard you can work. That has nothing to do with the car you drive. Has nothing to do with your 401k. Now hear me, none of those things are evil. They're just not. None of those things are evil. As we're going to see, it's our thinking and our, you know, where we place our faith in regards to those things that 
become sinful. But watch this. For all things are yours. To the believer, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. I love this. And you are Christ, his possession. That's possessive, apostrophe S. He owns us. We're his. And Christ is God's. Is that the last one, Jeremy? Oh, Revelation 21.3. This is Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is Jesus. Behold, the dwelling place of God, where God will be, is with man. If you're a believer this morning, this is true. These things are true of you. These are realities. This is This self will be with them as their God. If you are in Christ Jesus, then our hope is that God is ascending God. And God is a God that was willing, not only in the beginning in the garden, to come down to Adam and Eve. Sin fractured that, but he's a God that continues to pursue. And he promised a Messiah and he promised redemption. So not only did he come down in the beginning, he came down incarnate in Christ. And he's coming again and we will be his home and he will be our home. And so when James says... Lowly believer, lowly brother, don't waller in that. Don't think that your hope and your ultimate satisfaction is in riches. Boast in your exaltation. Boast in what Jesus himself has declared over your life. Jesus purchased our security. And it is a lie to believe that riches are where we are most secure. Whether it's physical health, whether it's money, whether... And look, I know all these things are practical. I'm just telling you. You're not most secure when your bank account is fat. It feels secure and it's a level of security. But the security that we boast in is this exaltation that Jesus brings and that he has accomplished that we are secure. All of the things we just talked about, they're not contingent on... Anything that we see here, your performance, what others think of you, others' approval, you have approval through Jesus with the God of the universe. So Jesus purchased our security. Jesus purchased our place in God's family. It is a lie from the pit of hell to believe that a perfect family situation is where you have solid identity. Can I get an amen? Because mine is dysfunctional. None of us have a perfect family situation. And so for these lowly believers, part of their struggle, part of their suffering, and we can relate, is that, man, if I would have been born into this family, if my dad wouldn't have been a deadbeat, if my mom would have been around, if my parents wouldn't have divorced, if all of those things that we struggle with, a lot of believe is that if I just had a better family, I would then have a secure identity. No, lowly believer, those of you struggling in that way, James's message is, hey, you've been adopted into the family of God. And your earthly father and your earthly mother, they're not perfect. And Jesus is the perfection of them. Don't don't look to your parents for ultimate hope, kids. Some of you are old enough to already see that your parents have let you down. They've disappointed you. Look to Jesus. Jesus purchased our place in God's family. In Jesus, I should say therefore, I guess, We are wealthy beyond all imagination. I love how Paul says the immeasurable riches of his grace. There's no way to measure it. There aren't words. There's not Greek words. There's not English words. There's no words. There's no words to describe 
the wealth that we gain in Jesus. I think that might be, at least in how it relates to us, how, why eternity is an eternity. I've had, I've had these thoughts and I've had conversations with people that go, man, eternity just seems like I would just get bored. Like it's just forever. Like it just never ends. It's just ongoing. And I mean, like, like how do we function in that? Well, I don't really know, but I know that there's this grace and these riches that are immeasurable that we gain in Christ. And I'm guessing it's going to take an eternity to experience it. And so lowly believer, boast in your exaltation. Just say it another way. Lowly believer, boast in Jesus. You're in. And go to work tomorrow morning. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the practical side of it. It doesn't mean that you just sit back and say, well, I just, no, I mean, we function, but as we function, we don't put our hope in the things that we see every day. We put our hope in the thing that we can't see and believe these promises. I don't know, was it the second song we sang? Holy mackerel, it's my new favorite. We know what he says is true, and he'll never fail. Now he moves on, verse 10, to the rich. And let y'all, again, riches are relative. I mean, you, um, Ray and I, we used to uh, attend the same church, and our church went to Ecuador every year, and... Um, the first time we went, we you know, kind of walked through the streets and we're thinking, man, these people are poor, right? They're poor. But here's the problem with this North American thinking is they're not poor. They don't think they're poor. They got big bellies. They're eating great. You know what I mean? Like they're happy. They're working hard. It's just different than what we have. And so poverty and, and riches, I mean, they're, they're, they're relative because technically almost every, I would say probably everybody in this room is in the top 2% of the people in the world. As far as rich. And so if you want to look at the big picture, we're the rich ones. But also it changes when you're zip code, you know? I mean, it does. The demographics are different everywhere. And so I know that this is relative, but it doesn't change the truth that's found here as he looks to the, the rich and he says, this is in, in, you know, what's insinuated is the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. And so now the, uh, the, way the, uh, the way the sentence is structured is that the rich now is to boast in his humiliation. And so for the lowly, boast in your exaltation. And for the rich, for those of you, us who, you, us, I don't know how to say that. For those in James' writing too, that their hope is in their riches that they have a tendency to boast in their effort and their success and how hard they've worked and all they've accumulated and their, and their last name and all of the other things that um, you know, would, might come along with being wealthy or in a wealthy family. He says to boast in your humiliation. The gospel brings humiliation. One of the most fundamental and necessary truths we must believe about the gospel is that we are sinners. Comprehensively Sinners. Totally sinners. Theological term is total depravity. I personally, for a long part of my life, struggled with this thought, and I think some of you may, but, but here's where I was confused, and maybe some of the confusion comes in with this thought that we as humans are conceived in sin and we are totally depraved, we are sinful, is that we think total depravity speaks to the intensity of our sin. Here's what I mean by that. So if I get in a conversation with you and my thought is, well, I'm pretty good because my sin's not as bad as Sarah's. The total depravity and, and 
the, what the Bible teaches about our sinfulness is not talking about its intensity. It's not about how bad the things are that you do. That would be a very human way to think of it because we sit side by side and we might go, well, I'm better than he is, so I'm pretty good. Total depravity speaks to the extent of our sin. It infiltrates every area of our life. Let me help it maybe make a little more sense. That's why the Bible says that even our goodness is not good. Because we can do 500 good deeds. And guys, let's be honest. I mean, they really are good. I mean, you feed somebody that's hungry. You clothe somebody that's naked. You put a roof on somebody. I mean, those are not bad things. They're good things. But from a human standpoint, if we don't understand, then we're going to go, well, I'm doing these good things, and it, my sin's not near as intense as their sin, so I'm okay. But what the Bible teaches us is that even those good things are infiltrated with sin. And there's been a thought. It may have just been a thought. Romans tells us that we have a God who judges our thoughts and the secrets of our hearts. There's a motive that was impure. There's a thought that was wrong. Sin affects every area of our being and of our thinking. And so, fundamental to the gospel and, and what it means to boast in humiliation, which is not something that us North Americans even think about boasting in, being humiliated, is that the gospel says first and foremost to us, you need a savior. Like you are lost. Not only are you lost, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You have no way to get out. There's no money. There's not enough money to buy your way out of this sinfulness. There's not enough success. There's not enough hard work. There's not enough. There's not enough. It's humiliating. But here's what it does. In the context, in this context and in his context, the gospel brings us all to, and and this sounds cliche and it's probably a bumper sticker and you might even have a t-shirt, I don't know. But the gospel brings us to this level playing field at the foot of the cross. I mean, that's what that, that's not a bad phrase. It's true, but that's just, I just expounded on it to say we are all sinners and we all need Jesus, no matter if you're Bill Gates or a guy that's walking around Tuscaloosa right now begging for 50 cents. We have the same need for Jesus. And so, more riches can't change that. So three things, just want to, uh, just quickly, just to sum up. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read these because I think they're self-explanatory, but I wanted to give you guys something to kind of just sum up what we've just said. We have a need that money cannot buy. And so for the, for the rich to boast in his humiliation, we have to constantly think, on, it's a way to think, constantly think on and remember that our greatest need money cannot buy. The greatest thing that we have to have was actually purchased for us because we could not afford it. We have a problem, sin, that money can't fix. That's humbling, boast in that humiliation. We have a void that money or material things can't fill. And so for the rich believer, and I do think, I don't know if I said this first service or second, but I'll just go ahead and say it again, but I do think this, these are both believers, and commentaries are about 50-50 here, and you know, can go both ways or whatever, but I, I really believe that what he, who he's addressing, he's addressing the church, and I think they're both, I think it's rich believers, and I think it's poor believers, and so to the rich believer, he's saying, 
You should never even think that you are superior to other people who don't have the earthly wealth that you have. For the poor, never even think that you are below people just because they have more than you have. Jesus Christ has declared these promises over both the rich believer and the poor believer and we're united in that. But it's not just about this way of thinking. That's a big part of it. But there's also the things themselves, like the possessions themselves. And I want us to have a healthy biblical view of the possessions. Because y'all, again, hear me say, if you have possessions, I have possessions. They're not sinful. They're not wrong. If you are wealthy, even in this context, it's not. I mean, if you're in the top 2% of our context, that's not a sin. But it's important for us, if we're going to boast in our humiliation, to also know what the gospel says towards us, that we are that low and we need to be rescued no matter how much money we have. But we also need to know what the Bible says in regards to the things that we can put our hands on, the possessions that we have. And so the rich believer must remember this. First one is earthly possessions are inferior to heavenly ones. Colossians 3.2, simple verse. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And so to your possessions... They're not sinful, but don't set your mind on them. Don't let that be what you hope in, what you trust in. Here's why, because earthly possessions will be destroyed. 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of, now this is a scary verse, all right? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Y'all encouraged? And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then the scripture today. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers with the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The point is this earthly possessions will be destroyed, they won't last. They're not going to be here for eternity. Now, there's going to be this new heaven and new earth that will be the full redemption of all things. We'll be in redeemed bodies. And that's a great study for another time. But what I want us to see and feel today is we want to know how to relate to our possessions. You've got to know they're going away. And some of you have lived long enough and been through um, certain circumstances that your life has been a parable of this reality. Your house is burned. Your car is broken. Your body's broken. Your money runs out. As painful as those moments are for the believer, the way that you boast in that, where you find hope in that is to know, Lord, this is actually a grace because it's reminding me that these things will ultimately pass away. And there will come a day when the only thing that matters is what you've done for me and what you've declared for me. And in that, I'm going to rest. and that, I'm going to find hope. and that, I'm going to move forward. Earthly possessions cannot be trusted. Proverbs 11, 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Can it be any more plain? Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. If you trust in your possessions, you'll fall. Guys, they will fail you. Your new truck is not going to be new long. You just do like me and buy one that's got 210,000 miles on it. You're not near as disappointed when it breaks. They can't be trusted. And so for the believer, the way for us to function together is to think this way and to know this way and and, and to have a healthy view of our possessions. God has given us these things 
And we'll see in just a second why, but he's given us these things not for us to hold on to. The gifts he gives us are little pointers to him. The things he takes away are little reminders that ultimately everything we see will pass away. And there's only one thing that remains. And it's his promises. Earthly possessions can choke the desire for God. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 8, 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, the seed, you remember the parable? They are those who hear. But as they go on their way, this could be true today. Of somebody in this room. You hear, but you go on your way and you're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. In the parable, that means that this person is not saved. Their hope is in their riches. So this desire for possessions, this desire for riches can choke your desire and love for God. And so as I frantically scurried around yesterday trying to figure out what to do with this 45 minutes, I jotted down some questions that came to my heart as I thought on these things. Now I'm asking these to you, but I don't want you to think I'm asking these to you in the sense of I haven't asked them to me. Where are you investing? And don't, I'm not talking about what stock options, really. I'm really talking more about the way you think in your heart. That, that investment is more than money. Scripturally, it's, it's more about where, where's your hope? What are you banking on? In your heart, what are your hopes and thoughts towards your possessions? Do you constantly think about having more? Or are you constantly in fear of losing what you have? Do possessions create envy in your heart? Do the lack of possessions create jealousy in your heart? Do you hate people who have more than you? Do you look down on people who have less than you? Do you have trouble investing your resources into the kingdom? If so, we need to adopt this thinking. This scriptural view of money and possessions. Certainly this starts in our home. It starts with us as individuals. But guys, I want you to understand something about Safe Haven Church. And that a lot of what we feel called to. And while we're sitting in this school right now and the vision that we have, a lot of it has to do with how we handle the money. Because our hope, and we planned it in these two communities, our hope in this community was that we would make a difference for the name of Jesus by our money going to the places that needed it the most. And so, yeah, we could have, from the word go, we could have done some things differently with the money and postured ourselves to, you know, around um, a, a facility or different things and that's not sinful and there's nothing wrong with that but we didn't feel called to that we felt like if we look let's approach Miss Rhodes let's see what she says here let's see if, if this thing can actually work because we would love for the couple thousand dollars that we're going to spend either on a loan or on a lease to go right back into the community and so we met with the school and it worked out and here we sit and part of the reason we sit here today and it, it's frustrating maybe for you that you're in a gym or frustrating if you're part of the setup team all those things sting and they're painful but I think it's worth it because it's what the Lord's called us to to pour out our resources into the community that he's placed us in. Ministry costs money, there's no doubt. And God's plan for his uh, mission 
to be global. Is, it's funded by his people. But I think even the church can miss the boat. Can look at the possessions and hope in the possessions. When as a church, I think what it means for us to adopt this biblical view and way to think is that we invest in the things that bring glory to God and people to Jesus. Sometimes that's a building, sometimes it's a meal. Sometimes it's opening your home. Sometimes it's fixing a vehicle. Sometimes it's helping with doctor bills. Sometimes it's giving people who don't have clothes. Sometimes it's getting kids presents. Sometimes it's helping people with hospice. Sometimes it's helping DHR. Sometimes it looks different than even anything that I mentioned. But we want to posture ourselves and our resources, all of them, to not only help people with their physical needs, but spiritual needs by inviting them into our lives and telling them of Jesus. And so if you're new to Safe Haven, then that might be new to you. We're not in this building looking as, as like, you know, we're on like a lily pad about to jump onto a bigger lily pad. We're in this building right now because we feel like God called us here. That's why we're here. And we feel like we've postured ourselves best to pour our lives out for the glory of God and so that people can come to know Jesus. There are people, there are homes in this community that Jesus Christ's name is not mentioned and he is not worshipped. And that's why we're here. To proclaim of his goodness and to, and to use our resources to do that so that people come to know Christ in a personal way. So, verse 12. Almost left this one off just because it felt like it didn't fit, but it really does fit. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. If you've been on this, uh, on this relatively short journey so far in the book of James, then you remember verses one through four. In verses one through four, it sounded something like this. Respond with joy. Remember, count it all joy. Respond with joy, knowing that your trials produce a steadfastness or a perseverance that will bring you to this future reality of lacking nothing. James's point in that was, hey, count it joy because you can count it joy because your trials cannot destroy your faith. That's amen stuff. They're not meant to destroy your faith. The trials are not meant to destroy your faith. They cannot destroy your faith. The trials are meant to strengthen your faith. And when your faith is strengthened by the trials that you're in, you can count it joy because it's producing, it has purpose, it's achieving the salvation. This day when, and when all things are glorified in Jesus and under his name and under his banner, that we will lack no thing. And so it compares to this, what he says today. Blessed is the man who perseveres, for he will receive the crown of life. He's pointing us to a future hope and a future grace. Now I think in closing, I just want to speak to this word that's important. And it's blessed. Now I know you all have seen that on um, car tags. Probably on an Escalade, right? Um, you, you don't really see them on um, El Caminos. But, kids, go ahead and Google that if you don't know what it is. I mean, so this word's important. I mean, this word really, really, really is important. Because, again, if you have an agenda that you want to bring to the gospel, then you can, you can, I mean, James is your book because you can do that. Because he, he doesn't expound on much. He just says things. But what is this blessing? Because it does seem that this blessing comes for those who remain. So we are rewarded by this effort or this work. Guys, this isn't just a James thought. This blessing 
is a Bible thought. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament that there is a reward. And so we really need to define blessed because some, even there's two Bible translations that translate this word as happy. And if, if that's the full meaning of this word, then some would take this and say, well, then if I'm following Jesus, he's going to make me happy. If I'm following Jesus, if I'm really following Jesus, then I'll be able to get me a tag one day on my Escalade that says blessed. And I'll be able to have the house that I ultimately want, and I'll get bonuses, and I'll get all these different things. If blessed means that he will bless us materially, then, then we're, some of, I am hurt. Something's wrong. So what is this blessed? What does it mean? Well, I'm not saying that it doesn't mean happy, and I'm not here to be overly critical. I just think the happiness is incomplete. It's not a full definition. It's incomplete because, hear me, guys, this word is from heaven. This is a heaven word. Because, well, let me just say it this way. I'm personally very thankful that I'm not only blessed when I'm smiling. Happiness comes and happiness goes. I mean, think if he's talking about happiness here and he's writing. I mean, how is that even encouraging to suffering Christians? Happy. You're supposed to be happy. There's tears and they're real. There's pain and it hurts. I'm cut and I'm bleeding. There, I, I, I'm not happy. I don't feel happy. And so this blessedness and this word blessed or blessed, it transcends your earthly circumstances. And it's a word that can be defined by how we identify with Jesus. Um, if we had time, I would go right back to all the scriptures I read at the very beginning of this. But I don't have time. But this blessedness is based on a new identity. Being blessed in this way and rejoicing in your suffering is this blessedness that comes from the reality that you know that you, you are united to God through Jesus. It's the blessedness that Paul felt in Romans chapter 8 when he said, there is nothing, and he named all these things, there's nothing that can separate me from the love. There's nothing that can pull me out of God's hand. There's nothing that can detach me from God. There's nobody who can adopt me once again out of God's family because by his blood through a finished work of the cross, the cross accomplished everything it set out to accomplish and it purchased your soul. You're saved. It's sealed. You're blessed. So you can get the tag now. No matter what you drive. You can even put it on one that doesn't run under the tree in your yard. You are blessed. It's not based on the material wealth. Those things come and they go. It's based on what Jesus has done and who he is and what he's declared. This blessedness lives in the heart of an individual that knows that this world is not his home. I couldn't help but think of Hebrews 11. I want to, just, just about five minutes, I want to read you from Hebrews 11. Um, if, if you have trouble following along, it's just mainly I just want you to see it. So read it and don't listen to me or listen to me and don't read it. But, but this is good stuff because th this helps us understand what it means to be blessed in this way. This is the chapter of all the, the, uh, the heroes of the faith. These all died in faith. Listen to this. Not having received the things promised. Like they died not having entered the promised land. They never saw the Messiah. That's what he's referring to. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, that is just a beautiful way to say that they did not put their hope in this life. They put their hope in the promises of God. 
They died in faith. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. You see, guys, you see how this fits? You see how it fits about how we view possessions and how we view riches and how we view salvation? This is what it looks like. These people spoke to us to make it clear that they're not seeking a homeland here. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have the opportunity to return. His point is, is if they really were just banking on this life and their comfort and security and money here, they could have gone back to what they had, but they left that. They were sent out, which is God's plan. He's ascending God. He sent us to this community because there's people that don't know him. But as it is... They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Now let's jump down to verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Obama, no. Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Do you you see what I'm reading? They were tortured, refusing to accept release because their hope was in a better life others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment they were stoned yes you're going to read this right they were sawn in two they were killed with the sword they went about in skins of sheep and goats destitute afflicted mistreated of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth and all these though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised since god had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made Perfect. I think James's attention here is on the future too. Rich person, look to future grace. Look to the future hope that Jesus brings. Don't look to your riches. Pour your life out for the sake of the gospel. Invest in something that matters. Invest in things and people that won't pass away, that won't burn up. Poor person, boast in your exaltation. Boast in what Jesus has done for you. Boast in what it means to be his. And so yes, this is a current blessedness. But it's rooted in this beautiful picture that he gives us that we will receive the crown of life. Y'all, when they hear crown, let me tell you what they're not thinking. When they hear crown here, it doesn't... Their imagery is not that they're sitting on a throne and everybody's around them worshiping them and bowing down to them and they place this beautiful diamond-filled, ruby-filled crown on their... They're not thinking about bling. It's not what they're thinking about. This word for crown is, is a, it's a wreath, a laurel wreath that an athlete would receive. And so it's, it's not anything really fancy. And here's the deal. It's not even really about the crown. It's what the crown represents because there's no 
you know, even if you're not an athlete, you know that when that athlete is a champion and they get the trophy or they get the ring or they get the crown or whatever they get, you know that it's not just happenstance. It's not just random. They didn't just kind of stumble into that. That behind that crown and that ring and that trophy is a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of blood, probably a lot of drama and a lot of tiredness and suffering and struggle. But there they stand, a victor. That's what they picture. So don't think the Christian life is just this cakewalk that if you're, if you're obedient enough then you'll be blessed enough and your life will just be happy and it'll be great. I mean, that's not reality. It might be yours, but it probably won't be for long. I'm not being doomsday. I'm just telling you the truth because I don't want you to, your knees to buckle and I don't want you to walk away from the faith if your faith is in fact in your possessions. And so this crown represents, he defines it. It's the crown of what? Life. Revelation 21.3, Jesus says he will give us the crown of life. He will give it to us. And do you really think that we're just going to be overly excited about this little crown on our head? Are we going to be eternally grateful for what it represents? Life, eternal life, not eternal death. Eternal life, eternal hope, a future. I long for that day. Ben, you guys can come on. I mean, I do. I long for that day whenever we see the fullness of Jesus. Whenever all of his promises we we know they're true, and, and uh, not that there's doubt now, but let's just be honest, guys. Faith is a burden. I mean, the way this blessedness is experienced now, which James fully intends on it to be experienced now, but here's the only way this blessedness is experienced today, through faith. It's not experienced any other way. It's through faith. And so we're placing our faith in Christ, in his promises, in the hope that is to come. That's how we experience them now. The beauty is, is that one day this blessedness will be experienced by sight. We'll see him. We'll be with him. Remember what Revelation said? He will dwell among us. We will dwell with him. And that hymn and all the burdens of my heart roll away. That's coming. That's coming. It's not today, but it's coming. And so I think the ultimate message to, to be faithful to the context of this scripture is for the believers that are quarreling and, and their, their mindset's constantly about what, what they have or don't have or what other people have that they don't have or they're always wanting more or whatever. I think he's just going, hey guys, hey, 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 hey. We got enough struggles of our own on the outside. Can we, the people of God, actually think on Jesus and what he's done for us? Like, can we actually live our lives in a way that brings him glory? Can we stop it with the petty stuff? Through Christ, we're free to be happy for other people. There's a lot of freedom there. I mean, you can be happy for your brother or your sister in Christ that has more than you because in Jesus, you're both infinitely wealthy. If you want to twist it a little bit, you can just think, well, it's going to pass away anyway. That'd be kind of a weird way to probably reverse psychology there. But, but seriously, I mean, I think he's just saying, come on, church. Be about the kingdom. 
Rich people, use your riches for the glory of God. Poor people, you don't have to have riches to glorify God. Boast in Christ. And so this morning, I mean, as we to this and what it looks like and where we go from here, I mean, the first place we'll go, I mean, if you're a believer this morning, um, we're, we're going to go to the table that Jesus has invited us to. That's why we do communion every week when, I mean, not every week, but we try to do it every week because uh, if, if Jesus invited you to lunch, you wouldn't say it's more meaningful if we do it once a quarter, right? Say, I'm, I want to come to the table because this is the way that God has given us to worship Him and to remember Him and to proclaim Him. But it's also a time of repentance. It's a time for us to think on what Jesus has done and evaluate our own hearts and where they are. And so, believer, this morning, as you make your way back to the table and you take the elements, boast in your humiliation. Boast in what the gospel says in in regards to your lowliness. But you don't have to stay there. You don't have to waller there. And you boast in your exaltation of what Jesus has given you through his blood, which is what that juice represents, and through his body, which is what that bread represents, and worship him. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, we invite you to come to know Christ. I want you to come. Look, here's the thing. And and, and you might hear me say this, but I want somebody to kick me in the shin whenever you do. If you're an unbeliever this morning, I don't want you to leave feeling challenged because that's not what the gospel... The gospel does not bring challenge. The gospel brings rest rest come to me all you are weary and heavy laden so that I can challenge you more no so that I can give you rest you'll work yourself straight to hell you'll good deed yourself straight to hell come to Jesus for rest if you'd like for me to talk with you more or pray with you I'd be glad but let's just respond in these next few moments let's pray